Acts 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we, we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from this, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So a few minutes ago, the 2022 Football World Cup kicked off in Qatar. And uh, Piers Morgan, the well-known, shall I say, even outspoken media personality, is on his way to Qatar, and he was just interviewed about it this week. Morgan agreed that there's much about Qatar we might not be very happy about, morally speaking. But then he pointed out that if we applied those very same standards to the other nations taking part in the World Cup, he reckoned we'd have to exclude at least eight teams. A quarter would have to stay at home. But he didn't stop there. He then started talking about other countries as well and other areas that, again, we might not be very happy with the way that they live. He asked the question, quote, who is morally clean enough to host the World Cup? And then in particular, he did go on to say, quote, are we, Britain, morally clean enough? To which the answer is obvious, of course we're not. There is no nation on earth that is morally clean nor the people of those nations. Again, dirty, unclean. And the reason that's really a problem, most of all, is because it means we are not fit to enjoy the relationship with our maker for which we were created. In our uncleanness, we can't get anywhere near the blazingly pure and holy Lord God. That is the issue. But what can be done? Well, just today, the chief executive of the Wales Football Association announced that Wales are in Qatar to help make the world a better place. Now, that is a bold ambition, not least given how short our stay there is likely to be. And no need, because anyway, there is a better plan in motion. You see, long ago, God said something. He spoke to one man. Abraham, in his kindness, and said that Abraham's descendants would form a people, and he would be their God, they would be God's people. God even promised that he would dwell with them, be with them, to show that there was a temple and then a tabernacle. But all the way along, we were meant to be asking, but how can that be possible? Because these people, like everybody else, were unclean, unfit for the presence of a holy God. 
But God put in place a system. There were requirements like circumcision and other laws concerning cleanliness. And it turns out Gentiles, that is non-descendants of Abraham, non-Israelites, they could also have access to God all along, but only if they too were circumcised and kept themselves clean. But you read on, and the people can't even do this. They can't really live at all as they are meant to, and they show this again and again. So what now? Well, Jesus. Jesus comes into this unclean, dirty, rebellious world, determined to gather a people for God from every nation. But how? Well, we're now going to have a whistle-stop tour, a review of Acts, our series so far that we've had at the 4pm. Get ready, we're going to go quite quickly. I've put some highlights on the uh, notice sheet, so you can either just sit back and listen, or you can try and follow along in the Bibles if you want. But all of these, I think, will also help us then understand what's going to happen in Acts 15. So Acts opens, chapter 1, the risen Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this news about Jesus is going to spread. But why start in Jerusalem? Well, it does make sense. That's where the temple building is. Remember that place of God's presence? That's where God was worshipped and it's where the disciples were to begin. And so then in Acts 2, we read at the beginning of that chapter. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire, what does that mean? Well, it's the symbol of God's very presence and then this talk of filling the entire house. Well, that's very reminiscent of when God's glory filled the tabernacle and the temple. But what's happening? We are not in the big building down the road in Jerusalem. We are with the disciples, with these people. It looks like they are being treated as if they are, well, a bit like a temple. Into Acts 3. Peter and John are in the temple area, that is the building of the temple, and wonderfully, a man lame from birth is healed. Big crowd comes, seeing what's going on, and Peter explains, chapter 3, verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Well, a prophet like Moses, that, of course, is Jesus, to listen to him. And notice that warning, if anyone didn't, they would be destroyed from the people. Now, that word destroyed there is actually only used here in the whole New Testament. Other translations put it, cut off. That is, Peter is saying to Jerusalem, this Jewish city, if you don't listen to Jesus, you will be cut off from God's People. Do you see how that would be striking? Cut off in the Old Testament is what happened to those who weren't circumcised. They were cut off from God's people. Now, Peter is saying, you're cut off if you don't listen to Jesus. God's people are those who do. And he goes on, still in chapter 3, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, the promises that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So there's, again, a reminder that all that is happening is fulfillment of the promise to Abraham of long ago. And notice here, verse 26, we are told, they are told, Jesus went first to the Jews at the temple here in Jerusalem to bless them. But saying first implies there are more to come. Now, none of this was popular with the temple authorities. Look at the beginning of Acts 4. As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I mean, how annoying is that? Telling people the good news that there is resurrection in Jesus. So frustrating. It's utterly ridiculous. But it's showing us, isn't it, that old temple was no longer fit for purpose. But if that temple's gone, but how would you get near God? How could you approach him? Well, still in chapter 4, look down to verse 11, where Peter tells them, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That is the cornerstone of a new temple. And as we've seen, it's people that are going to make up the bricks. The question is, what kind of people, what kind of bricks will there be for this new temple? So far in Acts, all the believers have been Jews. Well, we read on, we get to the end of chapter 7. You might remember there we get Stephen and his speech for which, well, he is killed by the authorities. This hostile persecution drives the believers out of Jerusalem, which seems a disaster, except that gets the message to spread. As Jesus said, Judea, Samaria, and then chapter 10, it reaches Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, but it reaches it with Peter. But why did Peter even go to a Gentile? Well, do you remember what God did for Peter? Chapter 10, verse 13. There was that vision, do you remember, with all the animals. And then verse 13, there came a voice to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. So God is saying, now with the coming of Jesus, those Old Testament rules concerning clean and unclean foods no longer apply. But this spread of the message to the Gentiles is causing lots of problems. Let's see that at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's a Jewish group, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men, that is Gentiles, and ate with them. So notice there are two issues on there in that verse with what Peter has done and what is happening. First of all, circumcision, that's an issue. Secondly, who you eat with is an issue. But still the word spreads. More Jews believe in Jesus and more Gentiles believe in Jesus. But now these tensions are getting stronger. For example, can Gentiles really just ignore what God had said before in the law? How then are believing Jews and Gentiles going to relate? Will they get on with one another? And so the tension is building and we are reaching a vital moment for the continuing spread of the word, for the growth of the church. These unresolved issues have to be addressed. 
And you'll be pleased to hear we've now reached chapter 15. Our passage for today is called the Jerusalem Council, which is addressing the issues we've just been thinking about. It's expressed first in chapter 15 and verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Or again in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So let me ask, what do you think? Verses 1 and 5, those statements, are they correct or not? Well, I'll give you the spoiler, you know it anyway. Of course, those assertions are wrong. The Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the laws related to cleanliness. But the issue is, why not? I wonder what you would say to that. Why don't they need to keep circumcision and those laws? After all, a Jewish believer might say, but it's in the Bible. They are all there. We have to do it. Why don't they? One answer you and I might give would be to say, oh, well, you don't have to do it because salvation is not about what we do. And I hope that would be a part of your answer because that's absolutely right. That's very important. Salvation is not of us at all or anything that we do. But if we only spoke about what we do or don't do, you've still got to deal with what we get at the end of our passage where James then does tell the Gentile believers what they need to do. There are requirements for them to keep. So we need to wrestle with this. What is going on? How does this work? How do instructions to the Gentiles fit in with the rest that is happening? Well, meant to see that in this passage, it's more than simply a yes-no answer on circumcision. That would be a very quick sermon, but it wouldn't help us very much. But more than that, there is a big picture of what is happening, of what God is doing in the world that we need to try and get our heads around and so appreciate. So, foundational to this is clean hearts by faith and through grace. Clean hearts by faith and through grace. So back at Pentecost in Jerusalem, beginning of Acts, God poured out his spirit on Jesus' disciples. They were Jews. Now, Peter gives a summary of his ministry to the Gentiles. Look down to verse 8. Peter says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. No distinction. Jews and Gentiles alike, full members of God's family. And he had come to both, to Jew and Gentile, by faith. Do you remember what Peter declared to Cornelius back in chapter 10? Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness of sins, that is cleansed simply through trusting in Jesus. So Peter draws out the implication, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So yes, back in Old Testament times, God commanded his people to be circumcised and to keep these regulations about clean and unclean foods. To a degree, that enabled the people to enjoy relationship with God. But of course, circumcision and food laws never 
actually dealt with the heart, with the people's uncleanness. In fact, it turned out the more that people tried to keep them, the more they realized they just couldn't do it. I mean, as Peter says here, it was a yoke around their neck. So how then could they ever be clean, fit for God's presence? Well, the answer we've seen is Jesus. The only response required is a trust in him, simply coming to him to clean us in a way we could not do ourselves. So it turns out, of course, if anyone still thinks, well, circumcision is necessary or avoiding particular foods, they haven't grasped what Jesus brings once and for all in full. Or maybe even worse, they somehow thought that what we could and should contribute helps in the cleansing process. Not at all, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's what Jesus brought, grace, undeserved kindness. It is through Jesus and his death that we are washed clean. Of course, this remains just as true for us today as it was back then. And isn't it glorious, whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever we know is on our hearts, however dirty we might feel that it is, full forgiveness, complete cleansing on offer. Not about what you or I do at all in any way. All about what Jesus, in his astonishing grace and kindness, has already done for us. So simply come to Jesus, trust him, have faith. Clean hearts by faith and through grace. Here's a question. Where do you find people with clean hearts? In the Bible story, I mean, why did people need to be clean? Well, it was so that they could access the temple. And so that's what we now see here. We see temple restored, a people from all nations. So far, we've been listening to Peter in the Jerusalem council. And now James speaks up to draw some conclusions. He starts verse 14 by saying, Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, James is using quite provocative language in a way, God's people for his name. Many in Jerusalem would immediately associate those with Israel. But no, James's point is we're talking about Gentiles. And it shouldn't really come as a surprise, because right from the start, there was that promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And what's more, it wasn't just Abraham back then. The prophets throughout the Old Testament said the same. So verse 15, James says, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, most of this is from the prophet Amos, although actually it's a compilation quote, including quite a few other prophets. Some of the details are on the sheet. But what James is doing by putting them all together is emphasizing all these prophets, your prophets, Jerusalem, were looking forward to the same future. What was that future that they prophesied? Well, verse 16, God promises to rebuild the tent of David 
that has fallen. Now, what does that mean? So we need to think about it. And uh, actually, Acts so far, if you look back, will help us. Because David, that is the king of 1000 BC, he's come up quite a few times in Acts. And each time, it seems, he's almost been associated very much with his descendant, the one who died but didn't stay dead. He was raised to life. And the risen Jesus, well, he is the beginnings. Well, we're told here to rebuild the tent of David. That is, there's a building project and Jesus is the start. And we've seen it. He's the cornerstone of a new temple. But the point is there is room for more. But who? And that's the language of verse 17, that the remnant, or you could say the rest of mankind, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see, back in the Old Testament, throughout, it was always the plan that there would be a new temple that God would build where he would dwell, and that temple will be people. And not simply Israelite people, or even Israelite people, but a few others who sort of had to become Israelite in some sort of way. But genuinely, people from every nation would be drawn in. That's what the prophets were looking forward to that moment. And with the resurrection of Jesus, the time has now come. God's great plan is reaching its fulfillment. That's what Acts is all about. So we've got the word spreading. We've seen that lots of times. But it's not just, if you like, the word spreading. Because what happens? The word spreads, people believe, they are cleansed, and that is they are now able to be a part of this new temple. If you like, people become bricks. and They are added and added to be the place in which the people with whom God himself will dwell once more. And the point is we are meant to be very excited about this. Look how it was put back in verse 3. Paul and Barnabas have been coming back to Jerusalem. And then verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When someone very different from us comes to know and trust in the Lord Jesus, we are to be thrilled It's good news for that one individual, but it also shows we are in these new days, this era where God is fulfilling and keeping all his promises. There will be a temple in which we are included, where God will dwell with us. And we have a small glimpse here at the 4pm, don't we, with many nations and backgrounds represented. And that's why we put effort into things like the Spanish speaking groups and initiatives. We've noticed there's quite a few of those around us. Not many of us at the moment in the congregation are Spanish-speaking, although there are a few, so we can do this. But again, this is something for the whole congregation to get behind and to think, how exciting I can be a part of what God is doing. Because my concern is not just for the gospel to go to people like me. Rather, I'm to think the gospel is also for people not like me. That's the wonder of it. People, if you like, who at the moment seem, well, just so very far from the church. Maybe at the moment they are immersed in a very different culture. Maybe they're militantly secular. Well, Jesus really is for them. 
thrilling as this is, it does then, as we've seen, lead to issues. If very different people are drawn together wonderfully, how then do they, how do we then relate to one another? How do we live together? How do we serve together? Well, let's keep thinking in an Acts 15 sort of way. So far, we've seen all sorts of people are being cleansed by Jesus. That means they could be part of God's new temple, which is being built and growing. But if you've got a temple, what do you find in a temple? Well, true worship, which is pure and serving others. Verse 19, James continues, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So he's confirming what has already been seen. No need for Gentiles to be circumcised. In terms of getting clean, no action required. Christ does it all by his grace. But that's not the end of what James has to say, which we might have expected if it was only about, so to speak, who does what for salvation. He has more to say. He goes on, verse 20. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So why then does James present these requirements? Why do the Gentiles have to do these things? And why these things? Well, the key word comes early. It's idols. Remember, everyone in the world is a worshipper. If we don't worship the one true God, we will always fixate our attention, our hopes, our devotion on some other God or idol, whether we accept or recognize that or not. Many around us in London, if you like, have their own deities, which they could name for us. Others don't call them gods, but they really do worship money and career, new experiences. Throughout the Bible's history, Old Testament, right up to the first century, the Gentiles, that is the nations around Israel, they did have their own gods. And with that, they had their own temples in which they worshipped these idols. One thing that was common there would have been feasts to these idols, eating particular foods. And with that, all sorts of, let's say, other activities would also take place which explains then the list that James gives. Next, James writes, the Gentile converts are to abstain from sexual immorality. First of all, what does James and the rest of the Bible mean by sexual immorality? Well, remember creation, how God instituted marriage by saying this, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From that, the Bible's consistent witness is that God's gift of sex is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within this public, lifelong relationship. Any sexual activity outside such a marriage relationship is what the Bible describes as sexual immorality. And as you read the Bible throughout, we find that idolatry and sexual immorality consistently go together. We're going to see this in Exodus for those in our small groups. When Moses is up the mountain receiving the words from God, at the bottom the people are deciding to worship a golden calf. And at the same time, we're told, they indulge in sexual immorality. 
on our recent 4pm weekend away, we looked at Romans 1. Paul again makes plain the connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. So it makes a lot of sense for James to highlight this here. Anyone leaving behind the worship of an idol to worship instead the one true God must abstain from sexual immorality. Now, in recent weeks, the Bishop of Oxford has released a lengthy document arguing for the Church of England to change its position on marriage. You'll be pleased to hear that at the moment, the Church of England holds the biblical view flowing from Genesis 2, as we've just heard. Now, the Bishop recognises that what he says, what he says, seems to be, quote, in conflict with some of the obvious interpretations of key biblical passages which indeed it is. The bishop also discusses this very passage of Acts 15. And here he says that he sees in this passage a trajectory which leads, quote, towards the blessing of permanent, stable, same-sex relationships. Which makes no sense at all. It's simply wrong. The bishop is teaching what is plainly false. Because James, here in Acts 15, the rest of the New Testament says the same, and the Old Testament underlines God's design as in Genesis 2. Human marriage between a man and a woman. The reason it matters is it is designed to reflect the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. So when people do turn to other gods and commit idolatry, that wrong relationship they then have with God is reflected in the wrong relationships they have with one another. And so James says to these Gentiles who simply believed, you're now clean. You're part of the temple of the true God. So abstain from sexual immorality. James then goes on, verse 20, saying Gentile believers are to abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, these two go together because they are descriptions of the kind of sacrifices that were offered in those Gentile temples and the sort of foods that, excuse me, would be eaten there. Gentile believers in Jesus are to abstain from those things. And as you read this, you are meant to be maybe a little bit surprised because we've read chapter 10, where Peter had that vision which made clear that all foods are now clean. In a very real sense, both Jewish and Gentile believers are now free to eat whatever they pleased. No foods are unclean in and of themselves. So why this requirement? Look on to verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this requirement about foods for the Gentiles was not, so to speak, for the Gentiles' sake, their own sake. It was not about what was clean or unclean or how to get near to God or anything like that directly. Rather, verse 21 says, the instructions to the Gentile believers were for the sake of Jewish believers. Because it is true the Old Testament law taught repeatedly about clean and unclean, including about how Gentiles who wanted to join Israel would have to keep these rules about what to eat and not to eat. 
So you can imagine it would be hard for Jewish believers to suddenly see these new Gentile believers eating those things. And so, James says, be mindful of that. Don't eat them. And so for us today as Christian believers, we do have astonishing freedoms. Many people think how we get clean, how we get to God is about what we do or don't do or we eat what we don't eat or drink or whatever it is. But actually, no. We have this wonderful freedom. We are thoroughly clean through and through. God no longer needs any sort of visual aids to highlight our uncleanness because in Christ, we have perfect cleanness from him. But the question then is, how would you then choose to use your freedom? Do you simply indulge in eating and drinking and doing what we want because I want to? Or do we see, I have these freedoms which I can exercise for the sake of others, so that others won't stumble and find it difficult, for the sake of building stronger relationships within this new temple of God's people, drawn from every nation to give time for those who are seeing new things happen, understand and take on board what is happening. If you want to think more about this, one place to see these principles in action, well, is to follow Paul. Paul is here at the Jerusalem Council. What does he do with these requirements? Well, we read on chapter 18 of Acts, Paul goes to preach to Corinth, which is a Gentile place, which is full of idols. And we read that both Jews and Gentiles believed. So the kind of issues we've been thinking about would be live in Corinth. Then, as you know, a little later, Paul wrote to them two letters, one and two Corinthians, and in them he addresses just the sort of issues we see here. I'll just read two verses from there. The first, he tells them, flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? But then a bit later, he also then says this about foods. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So God's plan is on track. He will have a people from all the nations, people who will be clean because of Jesus, people who can then form this new true temple in which God himself will dwell. And these will be people who live as the people that God has saved us to be, those who are pure and serving others. I'll lead us in a prayer. Saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, our Father, we praise you for your kindness to all the peoples of the world. Thank you for sending Jesus even to die to make us clean and to unite us as your people. And so now would we live lives of purity and looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen. We're going to have a chance to ask questions to Aaron. Um, some of them have already come through, but do be sending those questions in, even as we're getting started now. Um, so let's start with this one. And Aaron, you mentioned that, uh, you mentioned Acts 3, verse 22. Yeah. Um, why is Jesus being referred to as a prophet? Is he not a lot more than a prophet? Well, a prophet speaks the words of God. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. 
And uh, that's true, we have a number of prophets through the Old Testament and elsewhere, but Moses was a very great prophet. But Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18, at one point, God will send one like me, the ultimate prophet, if you like, coming to speak God's words with that ultimate message. And therefore, yes, there'd be wonderful other prophets who spoke God's words, but there'll be one who, it turns out, spoke God's words because he could only but be God himself. So all through the Old Testament, people are looking forward above all to this prophet. And when Jesus comes, God has kept that promise through Moses. Jesus is the prophet. I mean, you could say that about any of Jesus' titles. Isn't he more than that? Well, he is. But we are told he is prophet, priest, and king. But also lots of other things. Son of God, we could go on. Because Jesus is so great, we need to think of all these ways that show us just how wonderful that he is. Okay, next question. If the law of Moses was a burden that Israel could not bear, are the laws actually good? What can we learn from them as Christians? Romans chapter 7 tells us, so Romans chapter 7 verse 12, talking about the law, Paul here says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we've looked at lots of other places that tell us the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is when a good holy law comes into contact with sinful people like us. So the law is good. The law reveals God to us. His laws reveal God's character. God is faithful, so we should be faithful. God gives life, so we should honor life. God speaks the truth, so we should speak the truth. So through the law, we see what God is like. That is a good thing. The law shows us how we were made to live as God's people, which again is always a good thing. The problem comes though with sinful people, and then it does become to us as sinners a burden. So that's one to think about it. Another way, sometimes law is used to describe the system before Jesus, that all that went with the law. So it was, Galatians tells us, a tutor preparing the way for Jesus. So before Jesus, God in his goodness decided people needed to understand they were sinful they needed to understand what it took to approach God so it was a kindness to give people those things but it really did show just how sinful they were so therefore as a system the law as a covenant or a system is no longer in place we're in the new covenant the question asks can we learn from the law well yes of course we can because it's God's word we can learn from all of it because whatever God says is good And some of it will be speaking not as a preparation for Jesus, but you could say directly how to live as the people God has made. And so in a number of places, you could think of maybe Paul uh, in Ephesians when he tells children to honour their parents. Well, that is a good thing. You could think of the command to not be unfaithful, you know, to be faithful. Well, that, again, goes all the way through the Scripture because that's a reflection of the character of God. So we read the Old Testament in light of the coming of Jesus to see what is there there that is for our good. How can we take the Bible's teaching on sex seriously in today's world when even the church and ministers are stumbling? Yes, I mean, that is the challenge, and that is why it's shocking when a church that professes to believe the truth doesn't act like it and its ministers deny, even admit to deny what the church is holding on to. But we have God's word and God's word is clear. And so we can trust what God says to us. And although 
sometimes those who claim the title church may not be true to God's word. God has given churches where his people do gather and help each other to live like this. But we really do need others on this issue as well as every other because the world, and even if you like, part of the church, the key is go back to the scriptures. I gave that example in the sermon. I mean, you can read what that bishop has said and then go back to the scriptures. And I don't think it's very hard to see. And in fact, he admits that he is going against the plain teaching of scripture. So God speaks through his word, hold on to that and find others, find a church if that's what you need, where these are held on to. If you're in a church where these things are denied, well, that's not a true church because a church gathers around the word of God. But there are churches which hold to the truth, sometimes at great cost, and we can therefore know God through his word. We've probably got time for one more question um, before we sing again. Um, A key theme of Acts seems to be opposition to the gospel. Why is there so much opposition? I mean, there are lots of answers to that, but it's an expression really, isn't it? What's gone wrong from the very beginning? All of us turned against God, all of us. And so therefore, when God appears in our midst, in Jesus, what did humanity want to do? Get rid of him. And now, this is related to Jesus being a prophet. He's given us his words through his apostles, through his word. So as we now speak Jesus' words, including the gospel to others, people are being presented with the God who made them, but whom they've rejected and want to keep away and out of their lives. And therefore, if you like, they will shoot the messenger because that's the way of silencing that truth. So Acts prepares us to see that isn't a surprise But we've seen how many all the way through this series, God in his sovereignty and his goodness uses even what are great trials for us God's people to advance the spread of his word. And there are many who then hear it and do believe. So some will reject, but wonderfully there are many from every nation who do believe.